0: Hey everybody, this is Alex, uh, co-host of Why Are Dads. Before we even begin, I just wanted to say quickly, we just launched a Patreon. Uh, Yay, check it out if you can. Uh, They're all different tiers, named after some of our favorite pop culture dads. It helps us pay the bills, <laughs> particularly in the arena of production. We want the show to sound good, and we want to make sure that people who contribute, uh, musicians, artists, guests, etc., are taken care of for their time. That is important to us. It is a weird time. We totally understand. So if underwriting a Patreon is not something you're in the position to do right now, it is totally cool. It's fine. We just love that you're here and that you are listening. So, uh, check out the Patreon if you can. If it's not on the agenda right now, totally fine. Uh, we're just happy. We're happy to have each other <laughs> in this odd, odd time. Thank you so much for listening to Wired Dads. Hey, I know you don't smoke weed. I know this, but I'm going to get you high today. Because it's Friday, you ain't got no job, and you ain't got shit to do. How the hell you gonna get fired on your day off? Hi, Miss Parker. Hi,
1: boys. Oh, man, I'll wait till you come out. Boy, bring your ass off up in here. What you talking about, you wait till I come out? I smelt your shit for 22 years. Now you can't smell mine for five minutes. Man, ain't nothing wrong with smoking weed. Weed is from the earth. God put this here for me and you. Pop, pop, give. (coughs) Puff, puff, get! You smoking my shit? Hell no, fuck with your shit. Playing with my money is like playing with my emotions.
0: All right, man, he said we don't pay him by 10 o'clock. He gonna bust a cap in both our ass, nigga. We need to pay him, man. He crazy,
1: man, let's stick together.
0: Bye, Felicia. Hello, Sarah Marshall.
1: Hello, Alex Steed. Uh,
0: Sarah, just for anyone who has not heard the show, what is Why Our Dads about?
1: Why Our Dads is about... Watching a movie that includes fatherhood as some sort of theme and talking about how dads and the idea of dadhood are working in this movie. Are they good dads? Are they bad dads? Are they helping? If so, how? We're trying to I think we're, we're trying to sort of figure out what what makes a good dad over time, although we haven't admitted that to ourselves verbally until this very moment.
0: Sometimes aspiring good dads listen and get uh, uh, lessons from our cultural cultural theory conversations about Friday. So that's cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that part. That's the that's the most amazing part.
0: What is your experience with the movie Friday before this watch?
1: I had seen it one time before. I actually had the sort of sadly hilarious experience of working on a piece um, about stoner movies and like, what is a stoner movie? What's its history? And, you know, just a puff kind of a thing. And I was trying to find themes in it, but I was writing that. And so I watched Friday as research for it because it was on all these lists of like classic stoner movies. And I was like, I don't know, this feels different. Like I just watched... Cheech Qing Chong's Up in Smoke um, and stuff of that milieu, which, you know, and Up in Smoke is a wonderful movie also. But this one is like, it's not a broad comedy, in my opinion. Like, it's, it's, it's definitely a comedy. It's got a lot of laughs in it, but it feels like it's attempting to be a pretty realistic depiction of a day in the life of a neighborhood in a way that reminds me more of like a, a French film. (laughs) Is that an insulting comparison? No, it's like the red balloon. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, I mean, it just reminds me of like the sort of you know the wave of like European auteur films that I think Americans started seeing in the sixties and seventies, where it was like, oh, you can just make a movie that's like people just sort of hanging out, and and you watch them do stuff for a while, like oh.
0: And this was a huge, and we say in the episode, but this was a huge trend or a revival trend in the late eighties and early nineties in American independent cinema, where largely working around the the mechanics and uh, limitations of a low budget you could make a movie that takes place in one or two locations over the course of a day and heavily rely on the characters rather than rely on sort of like big action or, or large and dynamic sets. And so we saw this happen with, you know, with Spike Lee, Kevin Smith, Richard Linkletter, and then we see it on Friday with F. Gary Gray. And I think the important thing to take into consideration too is the only popular movies with black characters that were coming out at this time were either direct and abrupt and intense confrontations of racism, particularly in sort of like Reagan and Bush's America, or kind of like gangland movies about the quote inner city, whatever that was uh, intended to mean. And so in this movie, we get to know these characters for kind of who the characters are. And there's definitely drama that, you know, could be characterized or, or recognized from some of the other, quote, Hood movies, but it's not necessarily central to the plot of this movie.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and it's a, it's a movie about people and not about issues, too, which I think is just, you know, it's a different approach. And also just, you know, a comedy where there are consequences. Like, that's an interesting thing. I think the Broadstoner comedy tends to have a quality of like, they are these guys. They're always guys, almost. And they're getting in wacky adventures. And are there consequences? No. At the end, everybody smokes a doobie and everything sort of <laughs> resolves. And is that Alan Barkin and the band? Whatever. And, you know, this isn't taking place in that stoner comedy universe of just of nothing really mattering. And this all being sort of a picaresque waste of time. It's like, We're also very aware that this is a day in the continuum of everyone's lives and there are consequences and like people go to prison sometimes, not for very good reasons. And people get assaulted sometimes, not for very good reasons. You know, the awareness of sort of the lightness and joy of the story and also of the consequences that are in this picture. I like it. I really like it. Oh, and so the the finale to that (laughs) piece that I wrote is that I wrote it, I got to watch Friday. I really liked Friday, I did the piece, and then it came out the day after election day of 2016, a day everyone thought would just be a day when we'd be like, cool, that worked out the way I expected, and now I'm going to read this stupid fucking... a little cultural criticism essay on stoner comedies because I'm having a normal day. That was the plan.
0: <laughs> and here we are.
1: <laughs> we have given up the expectation of having a normal day ever again, but we're still watching stoner comedies.
0: Oh, you know, I should actually tell you what Friday is about. <laughs> we touched on it, but not not thoroughly. If you are uninitiated, Friday is a cult classic that came out in 1995. It was written by and starred Ice Cube. It was directed by F. Gary Gray. Taking place in South Central Los Angeles. The movie is about Craig, who just got fired from his job on his day off. And he spends the day with Smokey, who is played by Chris Tucker. He smoked all the weed he was supposed to sell and subsequently gets in trouble with his supplier, Big Worm. There's a huge, amazing ensemble of characters who come in and out of... Smokey and Craig's Lives, they are played by Regina King, Neil Long, Bernie Mac, Tiny Zeus Lister, and John Witherspoon, who plays the old man. Even if you don't know this movie, you certainly have heard some of the sayings and dialogue that has come out of it, most famously by Felicia, and like literally every single one-liner that Chris Tucker says throughout, it is a joy. If you haven't seen it yet, you should, and that is what we're about to talk about. One other quick note. Toward the end of this episode, we have a conversation about the comedy of meanness that prevailed in the 90s, which was triggered by how the movie treats a fat character. On the whole, Friday is great for a lot of the reasons that we will lay out in this episode, but there are certainly a series of jokes at a fat character's expense, and they are bad. We don't really address those directly. We talk more about shifting attitudes that have taken place over the past few decades regarding what is and is not seen as funny uh, particularly through the lens of mass audiences Uh, we do want to acknowledge though that these scenes are in the movie we want to acknowledge those up front uh, since we don't specifically dive into that Uh, they are unequivocally a bummer no matter how great the rest of the movie is
1: we watched friday which is, I don't know, it's a hard movie to describe in a way because I feel like you could focus on the plot element and say it's about these guys are getting targeted by this drug dealer and they have to get money by nighttime. Oh, no. But like, as you were saying earlier, it's also about a day on a street, which is such a 90s thing. I had
0: forgotten, you know, it's It's a day in the life movie that is ultimately a vehicle for exposing us to a lot of the zany characters in this place Mm -hmm. as an excuse to illustrate what it's like to live in a particular environment. I hadn't realized until I said that out loud that that is like six to eight of my favorite movies. (laughs) That's the do the right thing model. That's uh-huh. that's the slacker model and then the daisy confused model that's the clerk's model that is you know big, sort of offshoot of clerks that's the mall rats model as it's just like a day in the life to show off the interests of of the the filmmaker and then all the while you just meet all sorts of quirky people
1: yeah it's also, it's even the empire records model if we go in like a more commercial direction and like yeah i've always loved Movies like that. Also, Nashville, actually. Nashville is like the mega, (laughs) the turducken (laughs) of that. Yeah. And is Nashville like two days or like a, a week or something? It's a very short amount of time. It's like a convention length
0: it sort of kicks off with the arrival of people trying to put together a a political happening very quickly.
1: For Hal Philip Walker, new roots for the nation. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I suggested this movie because I hadn't seen it since I was a teenager. And Hmm. my memory of this movie being far more about the father played by John Witherspoon says so much about John Witherspoon's performance in this yeah, movie. And, and I also came to realize after the fact that John Witherspoon went on to play the father in in the, the WB show sort of around the Waynes Brothers right around this time. So that was also very much in my psyche. Mm-hmm. I think in the same way a lot of people, in the same way for me that like Martin Crane is a is a particular kind of prototypical dad that is like likable and charismatic and interesting in a specific way, you know, outside of the way that the people who watch him maybe necessarily grew up. John Witherspoon is that for me as well. He's also a Martin Crane.
1: Mm-hmm. And he's just like this, like dad who, like, accompanied you through the 90s, yeah. it yeah. seems like. He's just, like, he's just dadding it up, like, somewhere on TV throughout, you know, a few years there. Totally.
0: <laughs> Your synopsis of this movie, I mean, that's as much of a plot as this movie has. Like, these guys get in trouble with yeah. the drug dealer because one of them, Chris Tucker, whose name in the movie is Smokey.
1: Who is over the line, basically. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: He smokes all the drugs, the pot he's supposed to sell, gets in trouble with the drug dealer. Drug dealer has to send a message um, by shooting at them eventually. And it's about sort of all the stuff that happens along the way. And what stood out to me is a scene in which John Witherspoon, who's passed off as one of these quirky ensemble characters throughout the movie, uh, and as quirky and ridiculous as everyone else in the movie eventually has a moment where he has to connect with his son in a in a real and actual way. Uh, and that's the thing that, for whatever reason, I remember most about this movie.
1: That actually reminds me of the way that Anthony Hopkins was in The Silence of the Lambs for, like, I think 16 minutes. Like, he's barely in that movie, and he won a Best Actor Academy Award. Someone can actually not show up very much and be this kind of bookend character and no one's trying to make them look like they're bigger in the story than they are and yet they dominate it anyway that scene was one of the most memorable to me also um where you know they're having this this moment together and like yeah i mean how would you describe that change in attitude from the dad
0: it's a real check off the gun situation we see a gun at the beginning of the movie it reintroduces itself later because Ice Cube and Chris Tucker in the movie are in trouble uh there's their their lives are on the line ice cube pulls out the gun because he's he's going to at least protect them in order to get Smokey back home who's played again Chris Tucker and his dad walks in sort of right at that at that moment and how we've known his dad to this point is like actually when the hero worship is off when the hero sort of lens is off for me how my dad actually was a lot of the time, which is like on the toilet uh, uh, while talking <laughs> while talking to you. Mm-hmm.
1: I've smelled your shit for twenty two <laughs> years. You can smell mine for five minutes, which is like. My dad has never said that. Like, that's not exactly his verbal style. But, like, man, does it feel like a million things he said.
0: <laughs> it's absolutely a philosophy. and It's absolutely a I'm older, yes. you just deal with my shit for a couple of minutes. Yeah.
1: You're old man smelling shit, which is like a completely different proposition than, than nice clean baby shit but like whatever
0: whatever and, and, and not like you even dealt with the baby shit but anyway uh, so he's, he's kind of like a, a ridiculous character up to this point he's kind of a cartoon character up to this point when it's revealed that his son is sort of involved in this situation and that his son has a gun and the stakes of the situation of not just this specific situation but living in this neighborhood become clear to his father, or become sort of mm-hmm. a, something that he can't ignore. You know, he inter, he intervenes. He's very he comes at he comes at his son from a place of care, obviously, and very strongly encourages him to not use a gun, but to use his fists like they did in the good old days, because at the very least, you get to live to see another day. Yeah. He also refers to. Uh, We know nothing more about this outside than a couple of lines, but he refers to how his brother, Ice Cube's uncle, it sounds like went away on a gun rap for like 20 years. Mm. He's learned some real lessons about that. So there's a handful of things that are happening. But the one thing is that sticks out for me is, you know, my dad was maybe a dad 1% of the time. Hmm. and this is that one percent of the time but it's so meaningful when it actually happens that it becomes your primary memory of the movie
1: yeah and that when someone kind of is able to show up for you in the way you need at the moment that you need it like these moments do happen in real life you know and they and they become just as memorable and often also I feel like someone will like And this kind of connects to the principle of like, how do you preserve bad relationships? Well, you like dismiss the bad stuff and you focus on the good stuff. And sometimes those relationships are with your family and like it's, you know, you can't just dump him. Um, And and then it's like, how do you treasure the stuff or the moments where someone showed up for you um, and not use that as a way to ignore the stuff that's more difficult. Like, I feel like my, the, the ways I feel like I can think of my dad showing up are like when he's able to like emote and feel safe about it. Like he is able to just like be loving sometimes and to just be squishy and to be like, I love you. And you just like, you like say, I love you back. And then you like, get out of there before another argument can happen because it will, if you talk about anything, you know, and just the fact that like you have these little moments. It's like, I don't know, to me, it's just this lifelong struggle to figure out what to do with them, basically, which I guess we all have, because we all have different kinds of moments that offer us different things. But yeah, he just that he shows up in like the exact right time and place. And I wonder if that's what dadhood has been historically, that you're like kind of out to lunch mostly, but like when the bat signal appears in the sky, you're like, oh, this is serious dading to be done. Like I'm ready for this. I've been conserving my energy. Yeah. That's
0: <laughs> that's so you talked about you you've already mentioned Alan Thick and you talked about Alan Thick in a in a past episode. And, Inevitably. Uh, right rightfully <laughs> so. And I'm I'm starting to realize, and this is this this is already Recording this so far has already been immeasurably more helpful than a lot of actual therapy I've had, though. I will also advocate for therapy for uh, uh, anyone, however they need it, and for myself included. Yeah,
1: I think conversational podcasts and therapy can be great adjuncts to each other. So
0: Perfectly said. The thing that became clear to me, and it speaks to exactly what you just said through watching this movie, is... I started to live with my dad full-time when I was, when I was 12, I lived with my dad full-time the whole time, but my parents split up that I lived with my dad primarily. And that was around the time that I realized that I was just a child who lived with a man. (laughs) (laughs) That was our relationship. I was the preteen to teenage roommate of a man who didn't necessarily know how to be a father. And now he was primarily had to be the father. And so most of the time I just saw him be a man, uh, once in a while very occasionally he'd show up to be a dad and once in a while within that fraction of the time he would be a dad unencumbered by all of his own baggage right so hmm. so a lot of times when dad show up to be a dad They come and really all they're doing is talking to 12 or 13-year-old version of themselves and and not not Mm -hmm. putting it into the context of you. And so even when they show up, it's not helpful because it's about their ego, you know? Mm -hmm. But once in a great while, maybe five or six times, if you have a not terrible relationship with your father, right, they accidentally get out of their own way, and give you the kind of wisdom that we saw John Witherspoon give in this movie, Time <laughs> A similar experience where I got beaten up by three men in a parking lot. Uh, When I was like 16 or 17 years old. And it's funny in retrospect, because several witnesses who saw it said (laughs) that I just stood there and calmly asked, why are you doing this? Because I like
1: (laughs) passive resistance
0: just just beat me up. And I like tried to reason, like, why is this occurring? (laughs) And so I came home, and my father was sitting at the kitchen table, and he saw me, and I explained the situation. His response was caring and well-intended, but it most certainly wasn't the time that a father accidentally shines through. He said, <laughs> can't you gather some of your friends and go and, and go and take care of them so it never happens again? And then... <laughs> And then, in service of his ego, again, t- the father talking to himself, he reminisced about the time that he and his friends were in Italy while they were in the Navy. This is such an amazing, ugly American story, by the way, as well. And they were causing so much trouble, I think, down by the docks near the bars that the police tried to intervene with them. And they're like, fuck no, we're Americans. That's not going to happen. So they gathered all their friends and they overwhelmed the police so they could do whatever they wanted. That was his advice to me. He was like, you need to do something.
1: Do you think that he intended that to be the kind of advice where, like... He wasn't suggesting that you kill anybody, but you could take it that way. I think
0: I think for him the the pragmatic takeaway if we strip all of his baggage from it is if you don't end this in some way or illustrate that it's over, it will keep happening to you. And yes, absolutely. The loose read could accidentally be Go get your friends and 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 get rid of these
1: guys. Do what becomes necessary. Maybe who can say <laughs> what that will be? But then, okay. But so I I have multiple questions. Was this yes, <laughs> was this the first time you had ever had the shit beaten out of you in this? You know, or was this like the most severe beating you'd ever taken?
0: This was the most decisive beating. <laughs>
1: Right. Where where, like you had no chance going into it and like, and it just happens. I I, I had gotten, I'd
0: certainly gotten beaten up before um, for very different and very specific series of, of isolated reasons. But this was like, I hope, I hope, personally hope this never happens again because it was terrifying.
1: I guess this is like one of the, actually the themes of the movie, which I'm really which I care about a lot, which I feel like this is a movie that is also about de-escalation. Right. And, and that's
0: the interesting thing to see in retrospect and in the context of the movie, because for for my father, it was 0% masculinity related. It wasn't like a man would go and finish it. It was like, if you don't get all the termites out of the house, you're not going to have a house eventually. Like it was that kind of pragmatic.
1: No more half measures, Charlie Steen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because it was so rooted in his own experience, it, again, it became very much more of an ego trip for him. The point you make about this movie where it's not just a matter, it is absolutely a matter of de-escalation, but in the conversation that the two kids, the father and son have... The father kind of makes the I and mean, it's rooted in playing to a desire towards masculinity, that you can still be a man, whatever that means, without a gun. Like, he has to essentially say that, like, de-escalation is also masculine.
1: Yeah. Does he even say that, like, you know, real men don't need guns, basically?
0: Ice Cube kind of interprets it that way, where yeah. he says, like, I'm a man without a gun.
1: But I mean, thinking about it that way, like, of course, I'm bringing in my, like, dusty grad school brain, but I'm like, isn't it the most manly thing imaginable to not have a gun because you don't need a proxy dick? And you're just like, I have my own dick and my pants.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So quick to pick up a gun.
1: You're scared to take an ass whipping. You win some, you lose some, but you live, you live to fight another day. And you think you're a man with a gun in your hand, don't you?
0: I'm a man without it. We see de-escalation happen in this movie through, you know, John Witherspoon's character uh, convinces his son that uh, not only is escalating the situation a bad idea by bringing a literal gun to a fight or bringing a gun into the neighborhood, it'll probably lead to his demise in some way. This might just be so obvious, but I think it's worth talking about. Like, Why is that such a refreshing thing to see happen in a movie, especially coming from a dad?
1: I mean, I think because just the classic movie plot is escalation, actually, now that I think of it. Like, like the, the one of the standard ways to do a plot, especially in a movie that has any kind of violence or action or sort of defending your home, defending your family, escalation, that's how you make plot happen. So there's something... To me, there's something actually very subversive about doing any kind of narrative where de-escalating conflict is a theme. And I feel like what that first makes me think of is like trickster character narratives, where I think trickster characters in mythology de-escalate.
0: Why does it seem especially refreshing that the move towards de-escalation or the encouragement towards de-escalation is coming from a father. I mean, it seems so antithetical to how we know dads to be. And usually, like we've talked on Twitter about there's a whole genre of shirt, which is like the classic dad shirt and the classic dad shirt.
1: The horrible dad shirt.
0: The horrible dad shirt. Yeah, thank you. It's like it's like it talks about all the repercussions of if you date my daughter and there's like often guns involved. There's this real weird, militant, macho um, um, vibe. And that's obviously not the case for, for all dads, but there is a whole subgenre.
1: One of them is like, whatever you do to my daughter, I will do to you. And it's like, is this because you want to tell your daughter's boyfriend that you want to fuck him gently by a river? Like, what?
0: Yeah, Absolutely. You're not going to eat my ass. But why? why is it refreshing or interesting that in the war and in Friday – It is the dad that de-escalates and not, say, the mom, who's often is the person who does that in these movies. Well, in
1: connection with the dad shirt, you know, I would bring in probably my favorite dad movie, dad movie saga, The Godfather, and Godfather 2, Godfather 3, the whole trilogy. Because that's a story about generational escalation, right? And, like, escalation of violence. The fact that they have this power at all was this massive compromise. And, you know, we see that the core of this powerful family crime concern that involves having to kill people sometimes and having to kill the people who were your friends for your entire life, but who have double-crossed your family and who you have to take out of the game now, like that kind of a thing, that kind of warlike way of life that will eat your soul away over time and which, as you escalate and gain more power, will eat more of your soul faster, um, I think is... To me, it's is one of the messages of the movie. And so the tragedy of that buying into violence being celebrated the way it is with, like, for example, the fact that marching band music became tremendously popular right after and in the decades following the Civil War, which is like, why? Like, why do we celebrate war music? Like, I know it's fun, but, like, that's so weird. It was huge, you know? The fact that we celebrate... Elements of our wartime trauma as like the great historical culture of masculinity is like this large scale version of like celebrating the violent game your dad bought into as a compromise, as if it was something he did on purpose and wants you to do on an even bigger scale. So like anything where a dad is like, don't do (laughs) this thing. That maybe I have done, like Kevin Costner says, like, don't go to war, don't fight, like, just trust me, like, listen to me. And, like, de-escalating trauma in a generational way feels so radical of an idea for Americans generally and for an American movie because, like, our entire culture (laughs) is about generational escalation of past conflict, I think. And we celebrate that as what masculinity is. So telling a story about masculine heritage as de-escalation is like imagining that masculinity could be something more and better also, I think.
0: Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. We see in the movie that the dad's brother, he, there's mention of the dad's brother having, got, I believe, gone away for a weapons charge for 20 years. And so there's like, there doesn't even need to be a a looking back at, at forefathers, so to speak. It's like you know that tendency towards uh, escalation could land you in jail, which I ultimately don't want, or it could get you killed. And so this is not the way. And so he he literally teaches him that the weapons that he should use are, you know, de-escalated form <laughs> of weaponry. It's like he should use his fists. For all of the many, 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 many impasses my father and I had when I was growing up and the various ways – he was not able to connect with me. And I've, I've talked about how when I was a teenager, he ultimately wanted me to fight my way out of situations. When 9-11 happened, I was 18 and he called me and the first thing he said... Was when they call you join the navy because he was positive that the you know later that day a draft would be reinstated. If I should go into the military, I should go into the navy because he knew um, my disposition wasn't going to uh, do me any favors in the army or the marines. <laughs> and so that I mean that that itself was interesting. But even after the fact, he in in a little bit beforehand, he strongly strongly discouraged my my joining the military based on his experience. And he himself was was a very proud veteran, uh, was not proud of the policies that he came to realize he was advocating for by way of his service, but he was a very proud veteran and strongly discouraged me from doing that, not because he thought that there was dishonor in joining the military in one way or another, but as far as he was concerned, he and his father did the military bit on our family's behalf. And if there was going to be any uh, evolution and sort of the ongoing family line, I had to do something different from that. I'm surprised, uh, in retrospect in some ways that that was the case and that was the takeaway. And I, I don't think that he consciously knew that that was the case, but I do think he was like, you know, my, my father was an immigrant to this country. We did the military thing. And and in a lot of ways it screwed him up. I mean, he had, he had post-traumatic stress disorder for sure. And I think that, you know, he saw in me some tendencies toward that because some of my friends were joining the military. um, And I thought that there was, you know, it could potentially at the very least be interesting. And he actively discouraged that. And I, I thought about that a lot in watching, you know, this dad essentially save his son From trying to break that cycle that you described as, you know, in, in explaining how, how it works in the Godfather and encouraging him to sort of pull back the reins to do that in a way where it is a gift to his son, obviously, and a celebration of masculinity. It's not seen what he's doing is preservation and what he's doing is encouraging his his son to be tough and savvy in a particular way that is not inherently him being like a quote punk, you know, by doing that. Often dads in real life and often dads in movies in one way or another, you know, you think about the father as portrayed by Chris Cooper in American Beauty by pushing this idea of what masculinity should be in their imagination and the masculinity that ended up corrupting them. Uh, they end up, you know, fundamentally and fully damaging their children. To me, it was interesting. I obviously didn't, oh, I was too young, maybe at the time when I first saw Friday, to, to realize how revolutionary this role switch was or this this alternative approach to encouraging your son to be tough in a different way. But goddamn, what a, what a radical act.
1: People need to see these ideas in movies because movies are, they can do so much for us in terms of helping us to feel less alone and just, you know, allowing us to feel like some pleasure in our day. Like sometimes that's what a movie does a lot of the time, but also just like showing us different ways of being nurtured and like things that our families maybe don't express, but that a family could express and which it is makes you ask for different things if you feel capable of imagining it.
0: Did your dad ever give you advice for confronting conflict as a kid?
1: I remember him saying to me when I was a kid that we were similar because we both had short tempers and we both like needed to learn how to control our tempers, which when I was a child was true. Children have short tempers. And that was helpful. You know, it was just sort of deep breath count to 10 kind of a thing. Perhaps we are similar in the way that we process conflict because I do like he's he's a very reactive person. And if he if you say something that's pretty innocuous, but that like suggests that you might be going to say something that he will feel is implicating him in some way, then he will get, like, very prickly and, like, find a way to, like, escalate the conversation to the point where it ends. In my later life with him, he's he's been so escalatory that, like, that's what I think about when I think about any of that. I feel like I'm similar to him in some way because, like, I do process—have, like, intense—like, pretty intense physical feelings— around confrontation that like I do have to work pretty hard to do something with to me like having an intense reactive feeling of feeling like threatened that like fight or flight thing like that does happen to me a lot and it's like being given a hot coal that you then have to find a way to sort of like bounce around in your hands and then like throw into a punch bowl rather than just sort of like flinging back at the person who you feel has thrown it to you um which is what my dad does and so in another sense he has taught me how to handle conflict because he's so bad at it and i want so badly to be absolutely nothing like him that i've become a very like conflict dampening person possibly to too great of an extent
0: that description is is fascinating in that i just today watched this video um where trump was present where uh rbg was laid and it was i mean it's one of the few times in the past 4 years that Trump has essentially been face-to-face with enough citizens who can just yell mm. at him. And so there was just this loud chorus of boos and honor her wish and, and stuff along those lines. And you just see he has the mask on and he's dead-eyeing the crowd. And I loved seeing it because I'm angry. And this is a person who I think is is cruel intentionally or not, et cetera, et cetera. And so I loved to see it. But the codependent in me was like, "Uh uh-oh, oh no. Because to see a person who has not only fundamentally architected their life in a way where they never have to hear negative feedback, but we know also does that coal thing where if the coal comes to them, that fucking coal's going right back to you real hard. It right. was like, oh, we're going to see this come You're back. Like,
1: we're going to lose cable privileges for a month. Exactly.
0: I had a hard time fully reveling in how beautiful it felt to thinking this is coming back.
1: Another thing that I thought about watching this is just like and I was describing it to a friend of mine who right before we started recording, she and I had like a who's on first moment where I was like, Alex and I you are talking about Friday. And she was like, oh, can you not come over Friday? And I was like, no, it's a really good movie and you would like it. Um, But in trying to describe it, I was like, it's just really good nature. There's a quality to it that I feel like you don't get in a lot of movies that are sort of focused on like stringing a lot of funny little moments together because there's just and I think that has to do with the fact that like the easiest cheapest way to make something funny is just to make it unkind basically and so you can just string sort of a 80 minutes worth of sort of unkindness together and be like there it's a comedy you're welcome <laughs> and there's like you know there's definitely characters that are the butt of jokes in this like that comes up pretty frequently. But there is, to me, a really pleasant movie to experience because it allows you to be sort of immersed in a place. And you get this sort of, I don't know, maybe it's a small town feeling. Like, I really love that it's specifically about this street. And it made me think about, you know, the streets that my friends live on and sort of the comings and goings of people during the day and what it's like to just sort of have this village experience of like here are the people coming in and out of our lives and who are the sort of characters and and sets that our dramas play out with and we disagree a lot and we make fun of each other a lot and Felicia can't use the microwave but like ultimately we are going to stand up to this drug dealer together it just feels very sweet to me like this movie feels like it has a good heart in a way that it's hard for me to put my finger on but that I really love
0: I agree with you that I remember this being way edgier in retrospect.
1: Yeah. It's propagating the idea that it is sometimes more masculine to not shoot people and that it's good to do something less than shooting someone or getting shot by them, which is just like, just a great idea for everybody, just everyone.
0: (laughs) It's also presenting an urban Black neighborhood in, like, a not entirely cynical light, which... And
1: also at a time when the rest of America is kind of looking at Black neighborhoods in L.A. as, like, emblematic of something that really inspires racist thought, right? There's, I feel like the, you know, we've just come off of uh, the coverage of the L.A. riots and then straight into the O.J. Simpson trial... Which obviously I have no thoughts about at all, <laughs> and I feel like there was this idea, at least in white America, that like something is happening in black neighborhoods, like there's 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 revolution brewing, but we're not going to call it revolution, and like something something scary is going to happen, and there's just this sort of mystification of uh, of L.A. at the time as like this place where crime has acted on people's characters in such a way that you can sort of describe the criminal as an excuse for describing your racist feelings. And we're all going to look at L.A. as like a crucible of something that we don't want to come for the rest of America. And so I feel like this movie is also, you know, spreading the idea of like, yeah, you know, there are neighborhoods with some crime in them, but there are people living in them. That feels like something that the moment really called for also. Taking it back to the dad,
0: the thing that I did notice about this is that sort of this falls into that category of movie where things happen over the course of a day and zany characters are exposed. Is in all of those classifications of movies, none of them I can identify has a family in it. Hmm. Nashville does absolutely, but the the family the family story is told kind of in separate chunks. Yeah. But in this movie, it's like the characters plus their family plus a dad is really involved. And I found that that to be an interesting outlier.
1: And that it's confined to domestic space. Like it actually feels like a play to me in some ways where like you just have this, you know, this this very finite um, amount of space where people are crossing paths and interacting with each other and everyone you know, and also like we meet Smokey's mom, like we go through people's houses and like, <laughs> you know, I also really am fond of movies that illustrate the relationship of like mostly grown children with their parents, like especially like young adults that are still living in the family home. It, I, it feels like watching knives being sharpened like watching young adult men sort of Mm. just constantly in close quarters and scene by scene sort of power negotiations basically with their parents and siblings that yeah
0: wow i'm I'm glad you brought up that dynamic because my my brain goes to a mutual favorite Mm. of ours moonstruck the dynamic in which You have any young adults living with their parents or in that case, living with multiple generations in which the parents see you being who you are and usually an imagination of you that stopped at around you being 12 years old and you having to interact with that while then also having an independent identity out in the world. Is that such a fascinating tension? You know, we see that illustrated here again. Like I smelled your shit for 22 years. You can smell mine for five minutes. Like that is what that encapsulates, right?
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I also feel like that's, you know, the transition that we see Craig and his dad make where at the beginning of the day, Craig has suffered an injustice. Like he's been fired on. They're like, how could you get fired on your day off? And finally he's like, I went in to pick up my check and then they accuse me of stealing And they said they had it on video and that they were going to press charges. So, like, I'm fired now. And it's like, oh, this is not a legendary Craig fucking up story, is it? This is like a, you know, your employer is a criminal of some kind story. And at the start of the day, we get Craig's dad taking the perspective of, like, you need to get some kind of job. Like, don't you want to be a dog catcher like me? We get a beautiful dog catcher speech. And then that transitions from, like, you know, seeing, I think, your anxiety about, like, the young man in your house and, like, what young men are and what they should be doing and trying to get him into a productive role as soon as possible without addressing the fact that, like, what happened to him was unjust. And then, you know, that need to sort of, like, push him into manhood gets to flow into this chance to be like oh like this is your moment today to like grow up a little bit more like this is what's happening so like let's do this let's do this thing that's happening and then you can get a job on monday
0: (laughs) yeah i mean and inherently the message is kind of the most disappointing adult message of all to hear as a as as the offspring of of other adults that you know, it, it it's so interesting is that it never crosses anyone's conversation to say that what happened was unjust, because I feel like the most disappointing thing to hear from parents is like, yeah, you know what, sometimes unjust shit happens, and you've got to just deal with it, like, and deal with it, not by like confronting it by like, but moving on and doing something else, because that's just going to happen. Injustice is part of the whole thing.
1: And then to me, like the the most kind of heart-touching moment of this is when we have the scene between Craig and his dad that you've talked about where, you know, he says, you know, don't use a gun, fight with your fists. You know, you win, you lose, you live to fight another day. When he finds out why Craig is packing heat, he's like, says something like, your mom and I moved here to raise you so that so that these things wouldn't happen, basically. And that's like, I don't know, I feel like that's one of the things that the needs we bring to our parents as we grow up always comes back to like don't see me as just a younger version of yourself, see me as me, and even though that's this difficult moving target, when you get relevant information, like do something with it, like just be able to process information in the moment, be like like, oh, my son might have some reasonable expectations of the violence of the encounter that he's anticipating. like I need to think about this and not just let it sort of roll off. And so we that brings us kind of to the
0: to the culmination. It, it turns out, what is the... Oh God, I'm going to really reveal myself to be a buffoon here. But like, what is, what is it called when you think the drama, the ultimate culminating drama of something is going to be one thing and then it ends up being another thing instead?
1: Oh, I have no idea. Is it called a switcheroo? I'm sure there's a word for that in screenwriting school. There's an old
0: switcheroo. Oh, by the way... <laughs> One of my favorite books as a kid used to be the Third Rock from the Sun Earth Survival kit, book, and it was a book written from the perspective of the characters of Third Rock from the Sun. And there's one in which Dick, the character played by John Lithgow, gives a breakdown of how jokes work. <laughs> one of the joke structures is the old switcheroo, where... <laughs> And basically, basically he's describing yeah. the too much tuna situation where like oh you think God, one yeah. thing is going to happen and another thing happens. So anyway, we think the ultimate drama is going to be from these drug dealers that are coming after uh, Smokey and Craig. What ends up happening is, yes, that ends up happening. They get out of that situation, but they are confronted ultimately with the neighborhood bully uh, Debo who is played Mm -hmm. by uh, tiny Zeus Lister who's like the best ever terrifying character absolutely joyless terrifying abusive character in this movie Mm -hmm. they have a confrontation with him that stems from the fact that he is beating up the sister of Craig's love interest in the movie she confronts him uh, there's a fight between the two. We see two options go down. Mm. One is Craig shoots Debo in the face, which they don't show, but we know that that's what happens. And, and then in maybe the most heavy-handed moment of the movie, we go back to remember the speech from the father. Uh, we, we learn about him confronting his moment of grace. And then we see the alternative option, which is you can just throw a brick in a motherfucker's face if you need to. <laughs>
1: Yes, because, like, you want to de-escalate, but, like, you know, within reason.
0: Sometimes you're up against a killing machine. <laughs>
1: Sometimes you're up against a killing machine. Yeah, take him out for a while. And then that, to me, is, like, the most wonderful part because it becomes this, like, murder on the Orient Express type uh, situation where, like, everyone in the neighborhood gets to, like, get in their licks at this unconscious bully. Yes. <laughs>
0: I'd say Carolyn, as a movie viewer and as a human, is probably the biggest empath I've ever met. Like, not someone who would ever say, like, I'm an empath and, like, sort of fetishize that or whatever, but, like, someone who actually is.
1: Yes, because Shane Dawson calls himself an empath, and we all saw how that went down. (laughs)
0: There's a character in the movie in which Debo steals his, his chain and his grandmother gave it to him. And it's a very upsetting moment for him. And Carolyn was upset on that character's behalf, who we only see for maybe three minutes of screen time the entire movie. Mm-hmm. He gets his chain back and tells Debo that his grandmother gave it to him. And he's so victorious and like kind of meek and like beautiful. And that was such a rewarding moment to watch. Yeah, It's really great.
1: It's wonderful.
0: Carolyn is younger than you and I. Even that little difference of time makes her lens on this movie immediately see a lot of the very overtly problematic things <laughs> happen mm-hmm. with, with regard for fatness and um, uh, Asian mm-hmm. shop owners at that time.
1: Yeah, it's very funny to me, like, the generational gap I'm realizing is starting to exist between, like... I think millennials grew up on really mean comedy. I don't know why. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons. I'm sure that, like, white male heteronormative comedy has, like, always punched down because that's easiest. I feel like it's by letting more voices in. Like, people are realizing that there are themes other than meanness and that meanness makes them feel bad and that, like, other things can be funnier than just punching down at people. But, like... We we grew up in, like, a very mean time for comedy. And I think about that a lot with South Park, oh, which yeah. was, like, such an important show for me between the ages of, like, 8 and 18, basically. And which I, you know, South Park needed to happen. Like, it was such a massive phenomenon in the 90s. Like, there was something about us that, like, we craved it. We craved... <laughs> South Park helps children grow. And it, you know, provided just some kind of nutrient that like we weren't getting like there was an irreverence and like a satire that like we I think craved culturally but like it's so mean like whatever amount of like charming absurdity or satire or whatever it is in there it is like at least balanced by pure meanness I'm very encouraged by the fact I feel like year by year we're seeing more and more audience members who kind of respond to traditional mean comedy with like a sense of like, but that's not funny. And then we're watching people whose career is based on meanness just sort of like flail because they're like, I don't, why are you not buying what I'm selling? Like everyone loves my stinky garbage juice. I've been selling it for
0: decades you know David Foster Wallace spoke to just sort of the nihilism of like late 90s irony and I and I agree with that entirely and then and then I think like Jesse Thorne wrote an essay that about new sincerity which was sort of a big deal and like South Park came out when I was 12 years old and it was huge for me they were halfway through a season so there were maybe like 8 episodes out and my friend Matt and I for a year watched those episodes over and over and over and over and little did i realize That, yes, there was absolutely wonderful satire that was happening, but also it was creating a trap for a lot of people to just, like, be regular racist when they thought they were subverting racism. You know what I mean? And all of those trappings.
1: Yeah, because, like, the whole comedy ethos of, like, I don't know, the late 90s, early 2000s, like, Family Guy's success is totally based on this, I think, that, like, you convey that you're in on the joke and you're spoofing racism, and it's like, but if we can't tell... Unless we're deep inside your own brain, whether or not you're being sincerely racist or lampooning racism, then like what is the difference right. <laughs> like if it's invisible to the naked eye, then like i don't know
0: <laughs> and so I think for Carolyn watching this movie and she- grew, she grew up with with stoners from california and so and so for her, this was a movie they watched a lot when they were kids. This was the first time that she kind of saw it through these eyes, hmm. and for her. The immediate take was like, they are being really mean to the fat character, which they were. But also then for me, I grew up in the media landscape that came out immediately before this. And I can kind of just see it as a sum positive. There's a lot of things here that are working really well in contrast to what just came before this.
1: This was actually something that I was thinking about when I was watching Seven Mm. last night. Because it was one in the morning and I was like, I can't sleep. I'm going to watch Seven this is what happens when you run out of weed, you can't sleep, and then you have to watch Seven. And then you sleep like a baby. And they get to the part, I mean, this is the first victim they really deal with. They get to the gluttony victim. And I was watching it, and I was like, this movie's pretty phobic." And I was like, what a weird thing to say about Seven. But, like, I've seen it so many times. I've thought about it so much as, like, the way that we created our cultural ideas about serial killers. Like, I realized that John Doe is not making good choices, but I was like, this movie is being really mean about this man's perfectly nice body. And like, I really, I came here to see a serial killer. I didn't come here for bullying.
0: (laughs) It was in a time that was much less nuanced. And so the takeaway wasn't supposed to be, see, you have the same feelings about about, uh, fat people that he does. And so you're kind of a monster too. It certainly wasn't doing
1: that. Not at all. Yeah. And it was just, it felt very of its time in a way that, I don't know, made me feel like, I think you can tell when a movie is counting on you to find something disturbing. And it's kind of like the same thing as like just, you know, making a mean joke and expecting it to be funny because it's mean. It's like, you can people can just sort of like lose that automatic response over time. It's really pretty wonderful. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Sarah, you know the questions coming. The question is this. I'm excited for my answer, honestly. But I really want (laughs) to I really want to hear your answer. We all know who the father in this movie was. John Witherspoon, R.I.P. Last takeaway on him. So great. Just truly great. But John Witherspoon, R.I.P. was the father in this movie. Who, as far as you were concerned, was the daddy.
1: Another kind of 90s thing is growing up with like Chris Tucker after he got too successful. At being Chris Tucker. But I would say I guess like I really appreciated on this watch experiencing Chris Tucker kind of before Hollywood had its way with him, which it seems to be what happened because he's like, he has good energy. I like him. I like that kid Smokey. I like that Smokey gets to be the person who ends the movie. And it's also funny to me that like this is routinely described as a stoner comedy and like. It's a comedy with stoners in it. Like, that's definitely true. But and like, and Smokey has a Qi Qing Chong poster on his wall. So like you can tell that he's he's living in that world. It's not it's not anything like any other stoner comedy I can think of, where the entire premise is like they're high, and they're acting funny because they're high. That's the movie. Have fun. Maybe you're high too. We don't know. And (laughs) I don't know. I think something that I also find irritating about stoner comedies like as much like Chris Tucker career they became very codified and like we all agreed on sort of what was sort of funny in a and the simplest way possible is that like they kind of move away from stoner behavior over time and it becomes just like what Mm -hmm. is a stoner well they're like someone who who looks sleepy and and does really zany stuff all the time and, and definitely doesn't you know sit quietly on their front lawn and tell their friend to relax more like they have they have to right. be up and doing and moving and having heists and stuff like that. Um, and I, I don't know. I feel like he's um he's like a very realist stoner in a way that I appreciate too. Like he's the sort of the wise fool who just quietly influences people around him to, you know not take things perhaps so seriously.
0: Yeah, that's such a wonderful point. I mean, I think presenting this as a standard comedy was the spoonful of sugar to get in for people to see uh, an anti-gun propaganda movie. <laughs> so all great points about Chris Tucker. And also, I love Chris Tucker so much in The Fifth Element. Just so much. I haven't seen The Fifth oh, Element. it's lovely. And he plays, I don't know how directed it was, but he absolutely plays a queer character who is a game show host. Chris Tucker's character in The The fifth element would have a killer TikTok presence. (laughs) My daddy is Bernie Mac as the preacher in this movie. Mm -hmm. There's such a, it's kind of like a throwaway piece of drama. A Baptist preacher comes to them uh uh engages them on the porch eventually sleeps with a woman across the street and then there's some shenanigans that happen that preacher is played by Bernie Mac who is like a fucking stone fox in this movie somehow like i don't remember Bernie Mac looking great
1: neither did i and then i looked him up and i was like how old was bernie mac when he died and he was 50 he was only 50
0: uh he's so good as a smarmy throwaway character in this movie, has so much personality, and then is also just, like, he looks fucking great.
1: (laughs) Yes. He's wearing a great suit. He has what I recall as, like, a, like, talking heads kind of a look happening, (laughs) right? Like, he has, like, shoulder pads. Um, He's just, like, this, yeah, this glorious rectangle of a man. This movie also, I, I don't know, I feel like there's just... Maybe I read too much into, you know, director's intent like we all do, but I love movies that are generous with actors and they just sort of were like, no, someone's going to show up, steal a scene, and then someone else will do the same thing, and then we'll go back to Chris Tucker and Ice Cube. It's <laughs> like letting people show up and like beautifully do their thing.
0: Yeah, oh my God, I love that so much. great everybody that is it for right now that is it for our friday episode We love talking with you on Twitter and Instagram, so uh, find Why Our Dads in those places. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the show and making opening music as per usual. We appreciate everything that Carolyn does for us. Thank you so much. Thank you to Nilesh Maharaj, uh, otherwise known as Funky Fresh Lesh, who helped provide some of the beats for this week's episode. You can check him out on the information superhighway, and we highly uh, suggest and recommend that you do. Next week, we will listen to The Squid and the Whale. The following week, we are going to listen to Young Frankenstein and Frankenstein as we prepare for Halloween. And then we are going to listen to Angels in America. Uh, If you are listening along with us, hopefully you're stoked (laughs) (laughs) to catch up and watch those movies with us.